You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. So today we're in part two of our series in the book of 2 Peter. And we started this last week, and I would really encourage you, if you missed last week, you can go back and listen to the podcast, get caught up on this. Um, because I, I, my hope is um, when we plan the series out, we literally planned this out over a year ago, but God had worked in my heart as I had read through First and Second Peter, and I thought, man, I feel like this is something we wanna share with the body. And so this has been in my heart for the last year and a half probably. Uh, but we went through First Peter together in the month of March, walked through that. And Second Peter is Peter's second letter to a group of churches in Asia Minor. And he was writing the second letter to bring correction to some things. So First Peter was a, a letter of encouragement to the churches there. But Second Peter, he's writing because there is some false doctrine, some false teaching, some false teachers that have risen up that that Peter's trying to correct. He's trying to fix some things that have happened. And so he's writing this letter as a letter of correction. He's writing this letter from prison. He's been in prison by the Roman Empire under the Emperor Nero. And uh, not long after he writes this letter, he is he's executed for the crime of following Jesus and preaching the gospel of Jesus. And so this is kind of his, his farewell address to the church, not just the church in Asia Minor, but the church in general. And so he has a lot to say, but, but really it's interesting that he knows he's coming to the end of his life and he, he kind of takes his last words to defend the gospel and to defend the cause of Christ and to caution the people about false teaching and false teachers. So last week we left off with chapter one. And our key passages were verses eight and nine. And in those passages, we talked about this idea that if we pursue being shaped into the likeness and the image of God, becoming like God in his character and nature, becoming like him means that we will become productive and useful, that, that we will be productive and useful to the kingdom. But if we reject this, if we are pursuing our own way and our own path, if we neglect growing in our faith, no matter how many times we go to church, no matter how many times uh, we go through the motions and do religious things, if, if we neglect growing and becoming like Christ, then we become ineffective, unfruitful, short-sighted, and blind. And so if you thought last week was a tough message, I've got bad news for you <laughs> because it gets worse before it gets better. And so I wanna remind you that this series was laid out over a year ago. And so based on some things and some challenges our church is going through, um, it would be easy for you to infer some things about this, but I just want you to know if I wanted you to infer it, I would tell you. And so if you're confused about what I'm talking about, we will leave it that way. It's just fine. So let me get into 2 Peter chapter 2 today. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says this, but there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. So he says there were false prophets in Israel. So he's taking them back in time. He's saying, hey, back, you know, four, five, six hundred years ago, there were prophets in Israel. And there were false prophets in Israel. And just like they had to maintain 
their, their faith in the midst of false prophets, there are false teachers among us today. And you've got to learn how to maintain a proper faith in the face of false prophets. And let me say this, today there are false prophets. There are false teachers. There are people that say things, they sound good, but they are false. <laughs> I gotta be real careful because um, some of you follow false teachers. You watch their services online. You, you may give to their ministries. That's between you and God. You will post things that they're saying and doing. And when I see some of that stuff, that's part of the reason why I'm never on Facebook because it, it hurts my heart. And here's the thing. If you're not sure if somebody you're following is a false teacher, ask me, I'll tell you. But we have them today in our world, online, on television, in our area. There are people who cleverly teach destructive heresies. And we've got to be careful because they're going down a path of destruction. As we'll see, Peter reaffirms this over and over and over. Verse two says this, many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. The way of truth will be slandered. Peter knows what the way of truth is. Jesus says explicitly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when Peter says they will slander the truth, he knows what he's saying. They're slandering the cause of Christ. They're slandering the, the character of Christ by their behavior, not just the things they are saying, but the way they are living, it is incongruent with, with truth. He says this, many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immorality. Um, so when it says shameful immorality, the, the word for shameful immorality in the Greek is eselgia, and it's unbridled lust, excess, licentiousness, you didn't think you'd hear that word today at church, did you? Lasciviousness, another one, that, get your bingo card completed. <laughs> Wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. This is intense. So, so let me just define it this way. This is an unrestrained pursuit of what I crave. My, my flesh says, hey, you'll be satisfied if you get that go get that, and we pursue it. And what it's saying is, many people are gonna follow their teaching and their immorality, the, the way they live, the way they pursue singularly what they crave. They cast off restraint and say, if I just get that, that will be enough. But as we see, it's never enough. There is this empty pit in our souls that we will fill with as much stuff and as many habits and as many um, consumption of items and drugs and alcohol and sex and relationships and all these things, affirmation, good works, all these things go in this pit and it is bottomless. And when we pursue this, it ultimately leads to destruction. It ultimately leads to death, unbridled lust this reckless pursuit of what I crave. 
Verse three, in their greed, they'll make up clever lies to get a hold of your money, but God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be delayed. Now, this makes sense because we think of, there's a cliche about greedy preachers, right? You've heard it, I've heard it. <laughs> if, if I've heard it, I know for sure you have heard it. Because <laughs> it's not like people are coming up to me calling me a greedy preacher, but it happens, right? And there is some truth to this cliche. Do you know how I know this is true? Because I see preachers on television or online saying things like this. I've got this prayer cloth. And for a one-time financial gift to our ministry of $100, you too can have this prayer cloth. It's been prayed over by some person in a call center that I've never met or seen. And you could have this in your home for $100. They'll say things like, if you need a financial miracle in your life, God's gonna give you a tenfold blessing. You send a hundred, if you need $1,000, you send a $100 gift in and God's gonna bless you. You need $10,000, send a thousand. That's what they'll say. Why? Because they're greedy. They're, they're using you. They're after what you have. And they will say whatever they have to say to get it. But greed isn't relegated just to money. Did you know that? The word for greed here in the Greek is pleonexia. And it means a greedy desire to have more. Covetousness, avarice. It doesn't necessarily mean money. It just means I need more. Hey, what I've got is not enough. I want more. Think about your kids when you were, they were little and they were, had a toy, they'd be playing with a toy and their sibling would show up with another toy and all of a sudden this toy was not enough. I want that toy. No, play with you. You've got a toy, play with your toy. I want that toy. Why? Because they're saying, this toy is not enough. I want that toy. And we don't grow out of this. Our flesh does not mature out of this without Christ. So what happens is we have things that Christ has given us and we go, but this isn't enough. I want that marriage. I want that car. I want that house. I want that life. I want that affirmation. I want that job. I want that esteem, whatever it is, it's not enough. We want more, we want more, we want more. In the English Standard Version, this passage says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They will say whatever they have to say to exploit you to get what they want. Here's the thing about false teachers. And here's the thing about ministry, if we're gonna be honest. It is prone to attract people who are gifted, but may lack character. And we promote people who are gifted. And so if somebody can communicate well, they're gonna have an audience. They're gonna have a platform because people are attracted to people who can communicate well. They can, hey, you can say things well, you can communicate, you can move me. I'm gonna be attracted to that, no matter what they've done. Uh, the, the church we came from, um, the pastor was a, dynamic communicator and he had a moral failure. It was, it was not a, an oopsie either. It was like an ongoing lifestyle of, of problems and issues and we don't need to get into all that. And the moment he could start another church, he started another church about a mile away from the church he had left that he had caused so many problems in. And it didn't matter what he had done because he was such a talented communicator. I knew people would go just to hear him preach because he is a good communicator. 
It didn't matter. None of the other stuff mattered. And he drew a crowd. Why? Because of the words he could say, how he could move people, how he could touch their hearts. So there's always going to be a place for false teachers because we're attracted to people who can communicate. And here's the thing. False teachers hate truth. They hate truth because it contradicts them. It keeps them from getting what they want when they are faced with the truth. But they love feelings because a good communicator, especially when they're untethered by, from the Holy Spirit, can manipulate people with their words. They can get you to feel certain things. And if you can feel certain things, they can get you to do what they want you to do. They will exploit you with their lies, with their words. That's what they do. Peter is issuing a warning to the church saying, guard your hearts. Be careful about who you listen to. Be careful about who you give credibility to because they're leading you to destruction. Peter talks about the consequences a little bit in verse four. He says, for God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. He did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Verse six, later he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. And by the way, as a side note, they've actually found historic, historic evidence of the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah based on archeological digs. He goes on to say this, he made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality. And this is the same word we saw, this unrestrained pursuit of what I crave. He was, he was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So what we see here is number one, God is a righteous judge. He will not put up with sin forever. He won't. Because he is righteous and holy, judgment is demanded. But God is also merciful. In his mercy, he gives people chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance because he loves people so much. And what we see here, especially with Lot and his family and Abraham and his family, the world, the, the culture was corrupt and he spared them. He lifted them out. He had mercy on them. And if you look around the world we live in today, our world, we talked about this last week, our world is corrupt. You look just about anywhere and you see the corruption of sin and evil in our world. And it's so easy for us to go, okay, God, protect me from this world. God, keep me. God, just shelter me. Let's go start a commune. Let's go. If I had a dollar for every person who said, hey, would, can we start a Christian school? Because I'm uncomfortable with some of the corruption and, that we see in the public schools. We could have started the Christian school with all the money. But, but I'm just telling you, we see it everywhere. And so we want to be shielded and protected from it. But, but I want to remind you that God wants us to engage our culture. He wants us to engage lost people. He wants, his heart is to save lost people. So we can't just hide away and batten down the hatches till Jesus comes back. But our God is merciful. He is loving, but he is just and righteous and holy. And he will bring judgment on those who walk 
a path contrary to his word. Verse nine. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. Verse 10, he's especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desires and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. So it says he's especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. Now, scripture makes it clear that sexual sin is different than every other sin in many ways, uh, but it's, it's damaging to us because of how it affects us personally and physically, and it, it affects our bodies, all these things. Um, and, and we could get into into some depth on this, but already I sense your discomfort. So we will move on. But I'm just telling you, um, the Bible regards sexual sin as different than every other sin. But it's interesting to me that Peter points out that he's especially hard on those who engage in sexual sin and those who despise authority. See, at least in this moment for Peter, he puts these things on equal ground. And I wanna help you understand this because what Peter is saying is not that you should blindly trust all authority because let's be honest, I mentioned the corruption in our world. Um, not every authority is, is worth following. <laughs> we'll have a political series next year in October leading up to the elections, but suffice it to say, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you can look at governing authorities and go, eh, right? Let's be honest. Our world is corrupt. So he's not saying blindly follow every leader, but he is saying godly leaders that he's put in your life. You don't default to mistrust, you default to trust. They don't have to earn your trust. If they're a godly leader given to you by the Lord, then you start with trust until they earn mistrust. That should be our default. Because a godly leader is going to help you. A godly leader is gonna say, hey, I see you going on the wrong path. See, a godly leader is gonna bring correction to your life and that correction is the mercy of God in and for you. But we don't see it that way because we go, nobody tells me what to do. You can't boss me around. People do it. Grown adults have told me that before when I've said, hey, I'm concerned about your heart. What's going on with you? What are you trying to do? Trying to tell me what to do? No, I'm trying to help you walk the right path. And this is what happens because our world despises authority. We don't want somebody telling us what to do. We want to live our own life according to our own rules and do what we want to do. And when we live our lives this way, it leads to destruction. It's contrary to the word of God. So there's a part of this, and I'll go right into verse 11. It's a little confusing. It says, these people are proud and arrogant, even daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. So what it's talking about is there were angels that fell from heaven, and there were angels who didn't. So a third of heaven fell with Satan, and what it's saying is the angels who didn't fall don't judge the angels who did fall. They understand that it's up to God to judge. 
So it's God's responsibility to judge. Now, here's the thing. We don't, we don't like judgment in the church. We will say things like, judge not lest ye be judged. And we know it's serious because we'll say it in the King James Version, right? <laughs> lest ye be judged. Well, that means it's serious. But we will quote this scripture and what we're saying is, you can't tell me what to do. But what Paul makes very clear in 1 Corinthians 5, you can look it up if you'd like. He says, hey, I don't judge people outside the church, but I judge people in the church. If they claim to be a brother and they're not living like a brother, I'm gonna judge them. If they claim to be a follower of Jesus, but they're not walking the life of a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna judge them. That's what he says. So it's our responsibility to judge each other in, in the way that we come alongside each other and go, man, I'm concerned. Are you okay? I see this behavior. I see these activities. I see what you're doing. Man, you just seem distant. What's going on with you? That's how we judge. And we talk and we warn people off the path they're on. If somebody is heading headlong toward a cliff and we go, well, I don't wanna judge them and they run off the edge of the cliff and die, what good is that? I would rather judge people and have them be a little mad at me, but at least they didn't go off the cliff. Turn around, stop what you're doing. Do you know what another word for turn around is? Repent. So it says the angels didn't judge the other angels that fell, they left it to God. But do you know who did judge even the angels, supernatural beings? These false teachers. They did it because they're pride and arrogance. Even though they're living in sin, they're judging others because they're pride. They're so arrogant that they don't even recognize their own sin, but they're happily judge others. Well, they're not perfect. I see what they're doing. These are the things they'll say or do. Verse 12. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand and like animals, they will be destroyed. Nobody's getting that tattooed on their arm. <laughs> this is not a verse that people meditate on when they're praying. They're like, oh Lord, thank you. This is hard stuff. What Peter's saying is, it goes back to this idea he's revisited a couple times. They're driven by their feelings. They live according to their feelings. That's what an animal does. So some of you have dogs and you, you some of you have dogs that you put the food out and they will attack it. They'll eat all the food immediately. So you have to pace them, right? You have to put some food out and then give them some food later because they're an animal and they will eat everything all at once. They don't know anything other than their appetite. I've never, I've never seen like on National Geographic, they're like, and this cheetah is not pursuing the gazelle because he is overweight, this cheetah acknowledges that it's almost bathing suit season and he is not ready yet, right? Here's what the cheetah does. The cheetah says, I'm hungry and I see some food and I'm gonna go get it. And this is what happens with false teachers, but let's boil this down. This isn't just false teachers. This is what happens to us. I got an appetite. I've got a desire. I'm gonna go get what I want. We cast off restraints and we pursue only what we want. And it leads us to destruction. Listen to what it says. Verse 13. Their destruction is their reward for the harm they've done. 
So the word reward here in the Greek, it's mythos. It means wages. It's similar to the verse, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, the wage that these false teachers earn for the evil they've done, what they get, their reward is destruction. This is the natural outcome for their behavior, for what they have done. This is the ultimate end for people who live this way. It says they love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. And this doesn't mean that this is literal, that they will just go out in broad daylight and do these things. But what it means is um, they don't have the good sense to be ashamed of what they've done. They don't have the good sense to hide what they've done. They will, they will put on display what they've done because they're so blinded that they think there's nothing wrong with it. They're a disgrace and a stain among you. Again, Peter's talking to the church. And he says, these people are a disgrace and stain among you. They delight in deception even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. So I don't know this is exactly how this has happened, but I believe what happened is there were these false teachers. They knew like Peter's correcting and there's, oh, I don't know, there's something wrong. But man, we don't wanna kick them out. So let's be grace. You know, you can still come to small group. Just come to our small group, it's fine. And what Peter says is, hey, they're sitting with you in your fellowship meals and they're still lying to you. They're still manipulating you. They're still exploiting you for their own personal gain. This goes back to 1 Corinthians 5 again. When Paul calls out the people he's judging in the church, he doesn't just call it sexual sin. He calls out a whole bunch of sins. And he says, people who say they're brothers in the Lord, but do these things unrepentantly, they're not brothers in the Lord. And he says at the end of chapter five, refuse to eat with these people. Don't even sit down and have a meal with them because they are working against you and working against the kingdom. Paul's trying to guard them against ungodly influences. Verse 14, they commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. It goes back to what we said a minute ago, this bottomless pit, a little more will be enough. If I just get more, if I just have more of this, then it'll be enough. They're pursuing the wrong things. It says they lure unstable people into sin and they're well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. So if, if you're new to church, um, Peter, before he was called by Christ to be his disciple, was actually a fisherman. And it's interesting that he uses this language. It says, they lure unstable people into sin and they're well-trained in greed. And again, this word greed is the same word we talked about earlier, covetousness. They covet what they don't have and they think just a little more will be enough. And so what do they do? They lure unstable people into sin. This word lure here in the Greek is deliazo and it means to bait, catch by bait, to beguile by flattering or pleasing talk, allure, entice, deceive. And this is what they do. They lure us in. In James chapter one, I love the book of James, my favorite book of the Bible. Verse 13, James says this, and remember when you're being tempted, do not say God's tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone to do wrong. Temptation doesn't come from God and he defines where it comes from. Temptation comes not from Satan. I want to point that out. Satan did not make you do it. Satan can't do that. It says temptation comes from our own desires. 
which entice us and drag us away. Our own desires entice us. The same word, deliazzo, our own desires, deliazzo, us, lure us away from truth, drag us away. Our own desires club us over the head, throw a bag over us and throw us in the van and drive us away. That's what happens. I, I grew up in a very safe community growing up. Mustang, Oklahoma, it just sounds like a bunch of rednecks and hillbillies, doesn't it? Let's be honest, it does. I told you before, um, girls in my high school didn't smoke cigarettes. They ate them, they chewed, you know, and that's what they did. So that's why I had to marry somebody from Texas. So Mustang, Oklahoma was a safe community. I would go out and play in the summers. My mom, you know, Elementary, I would run around all over the neighborhood, play with friends, go in their houses, do all that stuff. That's what we did because it was the day and age we lived in. But one of the things my mom told me, and I'm sure your parents told you at some point, is don't get in a car with strangers, right? Never get in a car with strangers. And my mom had had to add to that. Even if they offer you candy, don't get in a car with strangers. I don't know why she would think I would have a problem with that, but somehow she did. Now, here's what she never said, and I bet you never heard this either. Son, if a stranger invites you to get in his car, even if he offers you Brussels sprouts, don't get in the car. Son, if somebody ever asks you to go in a car with them, a stranger asks you to get in a car, don't do it, even if they offer you asparagus and broccoli. Don't do it. So I'd have been like, cool, no problem. I don't have to worry about that. Because if somebody rolls up and they're like, hey, we got some vegetables for you. Have you had any greens today? I'd be like, I'm good, man, right? Even as a seven-year-old, I'm like, pass, I'm all right. But they roll up with some Butterfinger? Now you're speaking my language, right? You're like, go ahead, tell me more. It doesn't matter if the guy has a gigantic scar across his face, he's got a hook hand. He looks like he is right off of a pirate ship in the seven seas. I don't care. I'm getting in the car with this man because he's got a butterfinger. I'm going. He knows the right things to tempt me with, right? And here's the thing. My mom had to say, even if they give you candy, because she knows as a, as a child, as an immature human being, I would cast off restraints and pursue what I crave. And the people in the church that cast off restraints and pursue what they crave are immature. They're children. We all struggle with it. We have this this battle with our flesh that we hear about. But, But here's the thing. Mature believers aren't going, give me the candy. They can go, you know what? I don't know if this is the best thing for me. God, what do you, th- what do you think about this, God? What, what, do you, what do you say about this? Because we understand that our flesh will lie to us, that my feelings are deceptive. The worst thing we can do in the world we live in today is do what feels right. We don't see that in scripture anywhere. We don't see anywhere in scripture, do what makes you happy. Thank God the disciples didn't do what made them happy or none of them would have been martyred for the cause of Christ. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drags us away. 2 Peter 2.15. 
They have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. I love this story so much and we don't have time to get into it. But literally, this guy was riding a donkey and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord in front of him and the donkey's like, "Uh uh-uh. And Balaam keeps whipping him, like, go, go donkey, and he won't. And the donkey is turning away, he keeps whipping him. And then finally the donkey's like, dude, what are you doing? It's like Shrek, right? (laughs) He's like, Balaam, have you ever had a good parfait? I'm just kidding, he didn't say that. But the donkey speaks to him. You can read the whole story. It's in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. This is basically Balaam's life. Now, here's the thing about Balaam. He brings this up and the church would have understood the context of who Balaam is. Now, let me give you a little context. Balaam was a man who was called a prophet because he did. He prophesied from God, but he, he was actually executed for witchcraft. So we see this duality and we're puzzled by it. We go, wait a second. How could he be a prophet? and be executed for witchcraft. And this defines our humanity. This is who we are. We are terribly complex. And no matter what we do for the cause of Christ, if we don't guard our hearts, we can be guilty of witchcraft. All of us. This isn't just preachers of the gospel, teachers, people who have a platform or influencers on the internet or have a TV show or lead small groups. This is all of us. All of us are prone to wickedness. All of us are prone to go down the wrong road. It says they wandered off the right road. We all can wander off the right road and pursue our feelings and our cravings more than we pursue God. Balaam is a, It's a warning to us. It's a cautionary tale about what could happen to any of us if we don't guard our hearts. And verse 17 says this, these people are as useless as a dried up spring or as mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. Let me stop, start with this last line. They're doomed to blackest darkness. I wanna make this very clear. He's talking about hell. Hell is their destination when they live this way. When we live a life that takes us off the path that God has for us, when we live a life according to our feelings and our cravings and we cast off restraint to do whatever feels right, hell is our destiny. Except for Christ. Over and over and over and over, Christ pursues those who are destined for hell to intervene and intercede and to warn us to call us off because he loves us so very much. We talked last week, verse 17, these people are as useless as dried up springs. Remember last week we talked about the idea of being productive and useful for the kingdom of God. When we are walking with God, when we're being shaped into his image, we become useful. But we are useless when we are following our feelings. We're as useless as a dried up spring, an empty well. Verse 18, they brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. And one more time, this is the same word we've seen several times already. 
They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a life of deception. So not only do false teachers live a life that leads them to destruction, but false teachers will actually lead others to destruction as well because they will lure people with their sexual desires, their, an appeal to what that person is looking for. Listen to verse nine. This is so, this is satanic. Verse 20, verse 19. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption for you're a slave to whatever controls you. They promise freedom, but they're actually slaves themselves. Think about it this way. I mentioned this earlier. Oh, you need a physical healing in your body? Well, send us a donation to, and our prayer team will pray for you. They're, they're offering freedom. You need a financial miracle? Then you just send a seed offering to. What they're saying is you need freedom from the financial curse you're under. Here's how to break it. Just send us a donation. They offer freedom. They know what you're looking for. Oh, your life is a mess. Hey, if you just do this, oh, the word of God. But you know what? This part, uh, just do this and you'll have the life you always dreamed of having but you're a slave to whatever controls you. This is why Peter, at the beginning of the letter, 1 Peter 1, he says, I am a slave of Christ. And what he's saying is, Christ controls me, so I am a slave to Christ. But if we're following our cravings and we're a slave to our cravings, it's controlling us. Verse 20, and when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than before. Do you know why they're worse off than before? Because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, truth is revealed to us of our own sinfulness, of our own wickedness. Truth is revealed to us. We see the kindness and goodness and beauty of Christ and we're drawn to it. We surrender to it. Now we know truth and we're walking in truth, but then we're lured back to an old habit or lifestyle or addiction or whatever relationship. And now we go back to it. And now we are cursed because we know the truth and we're actively walking away from truth. So now, with all of this, now not only am I walking in sin, now just keep on a helping of shame on top of that. Now I've got shame because I know what is true, I know what is right, but I'm refusing to walk in it. So now the shame is debilitating. It is all encompassing. It, it cuts me off from relationship, from intimacy with godly people, intimacy with God. Uh, everything is cut off. I'm isolated in my shame because I think I can never go back because they're gonna hate me. They're gonna judge me. They're gonna think. The enemy knows what he's doing. We're worse off than we were before. Romans chapter one, verse 21 says this. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas, what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. What it's saying is they had opportunity to walk with and know God. And instead they have traded that out for worshiping creation. Something they could make in their garage. They could have worshiped God and been in relationship with him. So, so there is a movement and it's been going on for a few years connected to church culture. It's called deconstruction. 
And if you've heard about deconstruction, um, this is the basics. Every experience I've had with somebody who's deconstructing their faith, they were somebody who was walking with God, had a bad experience, maybe they were hurt by a church leader or by the church, maybe they uh, were walking in sin and got corrected and didn't like the correction. But for whatever reason, they had a bad experience with church. And because of their bad experience with church, their feelings have drawn them away and they've started to question the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is. Is this even really real? So what happened? Well, they knew God, but they stopped worshiping him as God or even giving him thanks. And then they begin to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Well, God's not loving because if he was loving, this wouldn't have happened. Well, God's not merciful. God's not benevolent. They start questioning what the word of God says about who God is. And don't get me wrong. It's okay to question because we all have moments where we go, God, I prayed for this. I prayed for this healing and this person died. Are you good? And our feelings might tell us he's not, but we cannot rely on our feelings. We go back to the word of God and say, what does the word of God says? You know what the word of God says? It says he is good no matter what's going on in my life. The word of God says he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, not just on my good days, but on my bad days too. So you know what? Um, I'm not going to listen to my feelings. This is one of the reasons why the psalmist says, awake my soul, because my soul does not feel like worshiping God right now, but I know he's worthy of praise. So we start thinking up, inventing characteristics of who God is. And it says, as a result, their minds become dark and confused. It's tragic when people get to this place. Is it wrong to question? No, it's not wrong to question. But make sure you're supporting your answers with the Bible and not with your feelings. Verse 21, chapter two. It would be better if they'd never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a godly life. Now, I don't believe we can lose our salvation. If you're walking with Christ, I don't believe that it just disappears one day unaware. You're like, what happened to my, where did my salvation go? Right? It, I don't, that is not possible. God's grace is too much for that. But I do believe we can actively walk away from it. I, I think this scripture supports this idea. I, I can't give you the details. I can't give you the moment when your salvation is gone. But, but and, and thankfully, I don't know. Because knowing my own humanity, my own flesh, I would probably live my life as close to that line as I could. But what we seem to see is there are two paths we can go by. And when we choose the path of selfishness, when we choose the path of our flesh, when we choose the path of our feelings, it leads to destruction. Let me go on. Verse 22. They prove the truth of this proverb and he quotes Proverbs 26, 11. A dog returns to its vomit and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. This is so easy for us to read this passage today and go, oh, we're talking about false teachers. We're, we're talking about televangelists and preachers and people with a platform and, and people that are acting like one thing but are really, really living another way. And, and it is, it's talking about these things. This is a warning against leaders and teachers and preachers like that. But this is also a warning for us. I would not cheat on my wife on my best day. 
On my, on my best day, I would never steal money from the church. I wouldn't do something that would disqualify me from ministry on my best day. I might on my worst day though. When I'm hurt and disappointed, I've gone through loss. I'm dealing with emotional baggage and issues. And if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person, I might. That's why I have to guard my heart. That's why I put up boundaries in my life to keep me from getting in places where I could be stupid because I could get stupid. That's why I'm vigilant. That's why I, I do my best to walk as close to the Lord as I can because I love. Man, I love my wife. I don't, I don't wanna hurt her. I love my girls. I love my family. I love my friends. I love this church. So it's a worthy sacrifice to say, hey, there are some things I'm not gonna do. There's some things I'm not gonna be a part of. There's some standards I've got in my life that seem unreasonable to the world that I'm just gonna do. That's it. And it's not unreasonable when we understand that it's not about following our feelings. It's about following truth. But any of us can get there. Any of us can walk the walk of Balaam, follow his path. Where we've got a, a foot in God's kingdom and a foot in the world and we're wishy-washy and doing our own thing and we'll, we justify, well, see, God's good because I came to church and I felt his presence, but then we go party like the devil. We're sleeping around, doing things that are ungodly. Any of us can be there. So this is not a call against preachers. This is a call for us to admit that we all need Jesus in our lives. As I'm winding down, a couple of thoughts real quickly. How do, we, how do we guard our hearts? How do we guard our hearts against ending up in a place we never wanted to end up in? Walking the wrong path, the path of destruction. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is this. Live a life of confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Some of you are thinking right now, Mel, I left the Catholic church I don't want to do confession. Now you're saying, I got to confess to you every day? No, that's not what I'm saying. So for us, we confess our sins to Christ. We don't need an intermediary. We can pray directly to Christ and he forgives us sins. He absolves us of our sins. I'm not talking about absolution of your sin. What I'm talking about is something else. James chapter five, verse 16 says this. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. It says, confess your sins to each other, not to be forgiven so you can be healed. Here's, here's what happens. When I refuse to confess my sins to the people around me, and I'm not saying everybody, but but godly people who are mature in their faith that I trust. If there are people that are less mature than you in your faith, don't be confessing your sin to them. Find somebody mature in, your, in their faith that is ahead of you that you can say, hey, I need to share something with you. Man, I've been struggling with this. And shame would tell you you can't do that. If you do that, they're gonna hate you. They're not gonna love you if they find this out. But shame's a liar. So what we do is we say, hey, I gotta be honest with you, I'm struggling with this. Man, I've been feeling this. I've been tempted in this way, whatever it might be. 
I've got a history and this is what my history says. This is what I've been a part of. And when we lift the lid off of that, when we pull the curtain back and light floods in on whatever it is we're ashamed of, shame is crushed in that moment. Because what we're gonna find, if you trust the right person, is that they're gonna love you beyond what you can comprehend. Confession is so important. And you're gonna find healing in that moment. That thing that has crippled you for so long in your spirit, in your emotions, in your walk with Christ, you're gonna be healed of it when you simply confess what you've been so ashamed of. And repentance, repentance is huge. Repentance just means to go in the opposite direction. I was stupid about this. I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm going this direction. And I'm the pastor of this church and I will tell you, I am the lead repenter of this church. I repent probably more than any of you. Just like Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I want you to know every single day I'm repentant to God. I repent to God, not because I have to be saved every single day, but every single day God's still working in my life. I'm not a completed project yet. So I have to keep going back to God and saying, God, thank you for your mercy and grace, but I'm still stupid and I still needed your help today. I still blew it. I said this and I shouldn't have. God, I looked at this and I shouldn't have. God, I had pride in my life and I shouldn't have. So God, forgive me again today. And we can walk in an attitude and maintain a posture of humility in this repentance and confession. It will humble our hearts and it is really hard to deviate from the path of Christ whenever we have a humble heart. Gordon MacDonald said in his book, Ordering Your Private World, there are too many people claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ who lost sight of their own sinfulness years ago. If they attend worship on Sunday, they leave without ever having had the experience of brokenness and repentance before God that indicates true worship. This leads to substandard Christianity. Every single time we come together to worship, we should be worshiping God and acknowledging, God, you are a good God, but God, I am so broken without you. God, I am in need of you today. God, I need your mercies again today, brand new. So Lord, help me today. God, I need you. I'm dependent on you. And when we have that attitude and posture, it should be really easy for us to worship God. It's hard for us to worship God when we think we don't really need him that much. God, you're lucky to have me here. God, my wife's fortunate. I got out of bed and came to church with her today. Second thing is this. Live a life according to truth and not your feelings. And this is just a discipline for us where we just say, uh, I'm not going to let my feelings win. I'm not gonna pursue everything I crave. I'm gonna let the standard of truth and the word of God be the standard for my life and not what I feel like today. And this is hard. It's not easy. We battle with this every single day. There was a verse I felt like was appropriate. Bear with me as I walk through it with you. Matthew 5, 13, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt is a preservative. It's an ascetic. And so what it does is it actually prevents corruption from advancing. It doesn't cure something of corruption, but it prevents it from advancing. So if you wanted to preserve meat, you could pack it with salt and the salt would help preserve it. Now, if it's already corrupt, it's not going to undo that. It's just going to halt the advance. 
And Jesus says to us that you are the salt of the world. And what that means is God has put us here strategically to stop the advance of corruption in the world in which we live. To stop the advance of corruption in our community, in our region, in our world, in our home, in our church, in our heart. There's corruption in my heart. God, I need you to cure me of that. I need to be the salt of the world. I need to stop this advance. This is what we were put on earth to do. But we can't do that when we're chasing our feelings. The interesting thing about salt is it says that if it's lost its saltiness, all it's good for is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. (laughs) And when salt is not applied the way it should be applied, it's destructive. Um, in ancient world armies, advancing armies, many times they would spread salt over fields and it would kill the fields. It would cause it to be unusable. It wouldn't grow anything as long as the salt was present. It would actually kill the insects and any small creatures living in the ground. It would just decimate it where there could be no life there. And the only way that life could be restored is if the salt was washed away. See, that which God meant and intended for preservation can actually be used for destruction. But it depends on how we choose and what we choose. What are you choosing today? Are you choosing to be a preservative? Are you choosing truth and life? Are you choosing to follow your feelings? and to kill the things you come into contact with. Because that's the destination for those who live according to their feelings. I'm gonna turn it over to our host in Blairsville. They're gonna close out our time. They'll give you a chance to respond. I love you guys more than you know, and I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. God bless you. I wanna invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. I wanna pray with you. God, I thank you that your word is true. And God, the the word that we read together today is a hard, difficult truth. It's hard for us to apply. It's hard for us to live out. And we need your help. We wrestle with this. So God, I pray today, before we go any further, I pray that you would reveal truth to our hearts. Thank you that you are so merciful and you're so good and you're so loving. You're so benevolent. God, you are righteous and just and holy, but you are merciful as well. So Lord, I pray today that we would not overlook your mercy, that God, those of us that have been running from you, those of us that have been far from you, I pray that we would take advantage of this moment where your mercy is intervening and we would say yes to you, that we would stop on the path we're on and pursue you, pursue life, pursue truth. God, I pray that you'd help us be mature enough not to just chase after what we are craving and what we desire in our flesh. God, I pray you'd help us desire truth, your truth above all else. So God, minister in these moments we have together, draw us to you. Now, with nobody looking around, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you'd say to me today, Mel, I know I'm not really walking with God. I know I'm not in a relationship with him. Whether, whether you've never really prayed to surrender your life to God or, or maybe you're here today and you'd consider yourself a Christian, but you know for sure that you have deviated from your path, that you have 
You've not really been walking with him. And today you need to rededicate your life to him. You need to get back on the right path. No matter what got you to where you are today, if you're here today and you say, I need to make things right with God, I need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm tired of living the life I've been living. I can't fill up this empty, bottomless pit in my heart with all the stuff. There aren't enough relationships or encounters or drugs or alcohol or affirmation or likes that will ever fill this void. And I'm tired of it. I'm done with it. So if that's you today and you say, Mel, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today. I'd love to pray for you. And if you want to be included in that prayer, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it? You can put it right back down. If you'd say, Mel, pray for me today. Yeah, thank you so much. Praise God. Who else would say, Mel, that's me. Pray for me. Yeah, I see you up there in the balcony. Thank you. Thank you on my left. I see you. Thank you, ma'am. Who else? Yeah, thank you on my right. Thank you. Another hand on my right. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you up in the balcony. I see you, buddy. Praise God. Praise God. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to say yes? Include me in that prayer, Mel. That's me. Yeah, thank you. I see you in the center section. Praise the Lord. Thank you, sir. I see you too. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Romans chapter 10, verse nine. says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we're gonna pray a prayer together. We're gonna confess the Lordship of Jesus in our lives. I'm gonna give you the words to say, but this isn't my prayer. This is your prayer from your heart to God. So I want you to pray this prayer with all your heart. Say, everybody in the place, say this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, I repent of my sin and I turn away from my old life, my old ways, my old thinking, my old habits. And from now on, I am yours. Use me for your glory and help me walk in truth for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause. Listen, if you prayed that and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, scripture says you're a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. We'd love to help you take the next step in your faith journey, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on, help us help you. The simplest thing for you to do would be to fill out the card and the seat back in front of you and then take it to our next step table out in the lobby when we get finished here in just a moment. Somebody from our team's gonna be there and we would love to help you take the next step. We're gonna resource you. Uh, we're gonna point you in the right direction so that you can walk down the path that God has for you. Uh, if you'd prefer, if you're watching online, you can simply text Summit PA to the number 94,000, select the prompt that says salvation, and let us know about your decision that way. And even if you do that, please stop by our next step table and let our team help you take the next step today as well. Hey, our prayer team's gonna be here as we sing this final song. And as I said earlier, the, the fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous man availeth much. It's what the King James says, so it must be true. So here's the deal. Um, our team is here to pray for you. And we're gonna believe with you no matter what kind of miracle you might need in your life. Today is your day. We're believing you're gonna walk out of here with the miracle you need. So let our team pray for you during this final song. And even after we're dismissed in just a moment, our team's gonna be available to pray for you. So make sure you find one of them and let them pray with you before you go. Pastor Todd's gonna lead us in a final song. And while we're singing this last song, our team's here and available. So why don't you stand to your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today. Guys, I hope you know it. I tell you often, I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. God bless you. Have an awesome day. 
If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.